I wish I had this master plan of like, you know, I'm going to conquer the world. It really isn't, wasn't that. It was, I would say I'm very opportunistic and resilient. And so really just as opportunities arise, I try to take advantage of them and try to ask for help when I need it and have people guide me. Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast featuring conversations with the most accomplished, admired, and amazing female revenue leaders throughout B2B tech. Taking the Lead is hosted by Christina Brady, a sales leader, lifelong learner, and president of Sales Assembly. This show is brought to you by Sales Assembly, the industry's first and only scale-as-a-service platform that helps high-growth tech companies scale better, scale faster, and scale smarter. Visit salesassembly.com to learn more. And now, let's jump into the conversation. All right. Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead. I'm Christina Brady, and this episode is brought to you by our incredible sponsors, Showpad, Upwork, and Motion. I have to tell you about Motion. They are a podcasting service company for marketing teams in B2B tech. They launch podcasts just like this one, and they create audio, video, written content, basically make me feel like I have a safety net while I am doing this. So if you are looking to launch a podcast and want that incredible support, Motion is who you want to go to. As I said, I'm Christina Brady with Sales Assembly, and I am so excited today to talk to our guest, Andy Harris. Andy is the CEO at Challenger. Andy, thank you so much for joining me today. Yes, I'm thrilled to be here. You have an absolutely incredible professional journey. I mean, looking at where you've been, this is not your first time holding a C-suite position, right? No, not my first rodeo. (laughs) Did you always know that eventually you wanted to not only crack the glass ceiling, but just full-blown shatter it? I mean, looking at your career, it's rare to see women in a C-suite position. In fact, speaking of some stats, in the United States specifically, 47% of the labor force is female, which is great. That's an increase. 29% are females in senior management. 21% of the CEOs in the US are female, but of the Fortune 500 companies, there's only 7.4% female CEOs. So this is a tall ladder to climb and you climbed it. If I'm not mistaken, this is your fourth time in a CEO? Yes, so yes, been climbing the ladder struggling where I look at it as more of a jungle gym. I don't know if it's been very linear. I think I've more gone a little sideways and then back up. But yes, it is definitely something that we need to work on, right? We need to have more women leaders. We need to have role models so that we can get women promoted into those leadership roles. And so I'm excited to continue the journey, but also most importantly, get more people on this journey with me. Yes. Oh my gosh. What a beautiful mission too. I feel like all of us lifting each other up is the way that we do it. So did you always know that this is where you wanted to end up? What got you into kind of that first CEO position and what brought you to where you are today? You said it wasn't quite linear. It never is. So tell us just a little bit about your story. Yeah. So, I mean, I wish I had this master plan of like, you know, I'm going to conquer the world. It really isn't, wasn't that. It was, I would say I'm very opportunistic and resilient. And so really just as opportunities arise, I try to take advantage of them and try to ask for help when I need it and have people guide me. So my first position was in 1999. I was 26 years old and I worked for Anderson Consulting, which is now Accenture. And honestly, I just like with their business model, it said, you know, this could be better, which is funny 
funny now that my partner who I still keep in touch with laughs. He's like, I love how you're like, you know, I don't really think your business model makes sense. And it's certainly not women friendly. And so I think I always just thought about different ways to do things. I, I tell the story about when I was 10 years old, I sold Girl Scout cookies. And I was like, this doesn't make sense to go to door to door. My dad works in a mall. I'm just going to bring all these Girl Scout cookies to a mall, which now you see the Girl Scout cookies, you know, outside of stores and then, you know, and outside of dispensaries, which is brilliant. I uh, love those girls. But the idea is that like, I've always kind of thought a little bit outside of the box or how could I do things better, more efficiently, more inclusive. And so that's really been my journey. And that's taken me to the CEO. But I would say it's really about my values of just always trying to think about how things can be better, different, especially when you think about diversity and minorities and really making sure that we're including everybody in our community. I mean, that is a topic that has always been important and is exceedingly important. And even today, something that we're going to dive into is just overall diversity in not only the professional world, but specifically in tech, in sales, on individual teams. And speaking of that high level, why do you feel like it continues to be this important topic that we are always focused on, but never seem to be able to completely nail? Yeah, I think it's frustrating because you have so many great people throwing their brains, their energy, their passion around it. I think it's just behavior change takes a long time. And, you know, we've seen that in lots of movements where, you know, Black Lives Matter, that's been a long time, right? I mean, and we're still not there yet, right? So I think that really we have to understand that just systemic oppression and these things take a long time to change. We have to just keep fighting. We have to keep working hard to get where we need to be. And, and we will get there. It's just it takes time and a lot of energy and a lot of people being incredibly passionate and people being willing to be open to think about things differently, like whether it's how we think about job descriptions, you know, taking out college educations, how we think about board roles. I love that the NASDAQ just talked about having women on boards, what California is doing around their legislation. So, you know, we need to support, it's a matter of, you know, people and process and change. And so we need to make sure that all of those things are coming together. I could not agree with you more. I feel like you listed out a lot of incredible nuggets there just in terms of things that are barriers that may be unconscious barriers to inviting additional diversity. Something you mentioned was taking out college requirements. Dig into that a little bit more with me. Where's the issue there? Yeah. So one thing that I've really pushed on every company that I've led is not requiring people to have a four-year college degree. Now, looking at things like experience, looking at how we can change the job description so that they don't necessarily need to have an MBA or a four-year degree or even a two-year community college degree and nothing, you know, making sure that we're really thinking about experience and what are the right people and the right strengths that they bring to a job versus focusing on where they went to college and what they did or where they worked before. You know, not everybody has to have worked at Amazon or Google. I mean, they're great companies, but like, let's think outside the box on how we recruit people and really making sure that we're creating not just diversity. I think people think is a little bit like, oh, let's bring people in. But how do we create inclusivity within our organizations? And what types of training can we offer so that once we bring people into the organization, if they don't have all of the check boxes, you know, we can train them ourselves and provide those skills. But what we do get is diversity of thought. We get people who can help us think about how we can relate better to all the customers we're serving, our communities. So, you know, it's a win-win. Yeah, absolutely. And even on top of that, too, you also talked about there's several different roles that have to kind of own the responsibility. And I think a lot of times companies will look at one department, you know, say HR. HR is responsible for taking control of our hiring initiatives. 
But in my opinion, it's got to be an all or nothing. And so at least in your experience, thinking back to companies that you've worked at, was there a time when you first looked around and realized there should be more diversity here? There's not enough. Or were there times when you felt like you were the only woman in the room? I mean, my gosh, it's like diversity in terms of just the gender split has improved. But then if you think of women of color, only 4% of the CEOs in the US are women of color. It's such a small that amount. That is such a horrible statistic and something that has to be changed. Yes. I mean, I think that it is everybody's responsibility and it's not just HR, you know, and I hate when people say, oh, you know, well, we've told our recruiters to find more diverse candidates, but they can't find them or right. The, the old age, it's a pipeline problem. No, it's not a pipeline problem. You know, it's a, you're not looking problem. So I do think that it is really important that it's about the company, but I think more importantly, you know, I talked about this before, but like, it's more about not just bringing people in and making them feel like they're a token, but really helping them, you know, assimilate into your organization, be part of your culture, you know, make sure that they feel comfortable because I see it all the time where people recruit great talent and then it doesn't work out for various reasons. And the biggest reason I see is that they didn't put things in place to make them feel comfortable and to make them feel part of their value system. And they didn't put the right things in place. There wasn't unconscious, for example, unconscious bias training. Every company should be doing unconscious bias training. We all have unconscious biases and we say things without thinking. I know often I'll say something and be like, oh, shoot, I wish someone would have pointed that out to me, right? So we're all trying to be better at this. No one is perfect at this. So yes, unconscious bias training is huge and a great place to start. I remember when I was working at a prior company and I was similar to you sort of noticing because you feel it as a woman because you're hitting one of the first markers of diversity where you're like, I'm feeling a little bit alone. There's not a whole lot of people here who look like me and think like me. And I remember a senior leader saying, well, we don't look at color on a resume and we don't look at names on a resume. We look at who's the best fit for the job and we're colorblind. We hire them regardless of that. And then I looked around and thought to myself, but how is it that only white people <laughs> are right for the job? And so have you experienced something like that? And when you do, how do you counter that? How do you counter that point when it seems so logical where we're never looking at color? It's just these happen to be the people who are best for the job. Yeah. And I think that's where the unconscious bias comes in. Things like people's networks. So, you know, I went to University of Michigan. It's a great network. People are like, oh, you went to Michigan. Let me introduce you to this person, right? So it's not just about color. It's about opportunity. It's about exposure. It's about sharing your networks, right? So that's part of the problem. Like I talked about job descriptions, even, you know, you've seen like, I'm sure you've seen like the terminology. If I say aggressive in a job description, more men are going to apply than women. So making sure that our job descriptions don't have biases in them. And then the thing I would say for me, like even once I've joined a company, I always laugh because there's so I mean, I could every day I could write like a little tick, you know, a little bullet point about like what I've experienced. Like the other day I was on a call with eight white men and they were using all these golf references to talk about where we needed to go in, in a certain situation. And I'm like, I don't play golf. I don't care about golf. Like, you know, and I actually am a sports person, but I'm like, you know, so it's funny, like they don't even realize it. Right. It's like that to me, you know, what? like when I, you know, I don't give your hair and makeup analogies. Right. So I think there is just still a long way to go. And I think the first time I really saw it, I think the most evident in my career was when I left Anderson consulting because there were no women partners and that I had in my group. And there was only one woman partner in the entire Midwest. And she went out on maternity leave and she came back three days later and everybody was cheering, saying how great that was and how awesome it is and how tough she is and how she had a baby and she came back to work and was already back at the client. And I'm like, so that's the expectation of, you know, women now. I mean, that was in 1999. A lot has, or 1996, I should say, a lot has changed since then. But, you know, the expectation were, oh, you could be a 
a woman and you can be in a powerful position, but just don't act like a woman. So, you know, when you have a baby, you need to be back at work in three days and you can't leave work to go get your kid or, you know, you need to pretend like it's a doctor's appointment, right? Like we hide behind these things. And now I'm like, no, this is ridiculous. Like we should realize that women bring awesome things to the workplace and we should embrace that versus trying to skirt around the issue. It's this idea of this inherent weakness that we always have to overcome, this idea that we weren't born with the goods and so we have to prove it. And so it kind of leads into also this idea behind where potential versus performance. And I think what you're touching on, and this is not just in a gender split, but I see this culturally, I see this racially driven, this idea of certain people who get to ride on the coattails of their potential and others who must prove it first. And you've had experience in lots of companies. Do you see that to be a consistent theme? Yeah, I mean, I think women, especially we suffer from imposter syndrome for that reason, you know, because we are constantly thinking we're not good enough, or we have to work harder, or we have to, you know, like, I always think, gosh, I really over prepare, like you and I, you and I were even talking about this podcast, right? I was like, Oh, I, I did some research, I have data points, I have, you know, like, I'm so used to not being able to just like, go with it, right? Like, I always feel like I over over prepare, because I want to make sure that nobody ever says, Oh, well, you know, she wasn't prepared, or she was emotional, or like, right, we can't be too kind, or we can't be too, you know, because then we're considered soft, right? So we're always, I think as women, we're always trying to calibrate so that we don't, I actually talk about, right, like not, you know, we don't shine our light too much because we were scared that other people, that might cause them to feel uncomfortable, right? We're always so worried about people's comfort. And one of the things I'm really trying to embrace this year, now that I'm 47, is really think about how do I really make sure I'm being authentic to myself and not worrying about everybody's comfort all the time because, you know, I can't be everything to everybody. And sometimes I'm just not your cup of tea and that's okay, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that authenticity to me is comforting, but I think it's about each individual person where when you are confronted with somebody's authenticity, your reaction to that says a lot about you in terms of your overall acceptance. And you made this amazing point earlier that like you're comfortable when you're in a room with people who think like you do, but also people who think differently because it's how we grow. And it was making me think just about the different teams that exist. I mean, even specifically at a tech company, you think of all of the different revenue teams and kind of their makeup. Do you tend to see that there are specific teams in revenue that do better in terms of diversity hiring or promoting or career pathing than others? Are there certain segments that we should be looking at and say like, what are they doing that we are not and take a page yeah, from it? Yeah, I mean, I think there are. Unfortunately, I think they're typically, I always hate when I go to, a website of a company that's about us and the two, you know, women or minorities at the company are the marketing person and the HR person, right? You know, and we've all had that experience of just being like, oh, so you didn't really try that hard. So I think that, you know, so yes, you could say historically those company, those parts or those departments have done better. But I think really where the issues are are on the engineering side, on the product side, on the the sales side, you know, obviously a challenger, we focus a lot on our sales team and making sure our sales team is diverse. But I was just looking at yeah, we talked just talked about data, right? I was looking at data at this point, heads of sales. So women make up about women and minorities make up about 50% of the actual talent pool of sales leaders, but yet only 18.8% of women are actually in ahead of sales at an organization. So when you think about where that gap is, and then if you drill down even further, you can see, for example, that women for strong performers, women make on average 4.1% commission, whereas men who have the same performance make 5% commission. Right. So we're starting. So that's, you know, another 
another major issue. So really thinking about, you know, how do we level that playing field and how do we get more women in leadership roles? How do we, you know, really go, you know, systematically team by team in our organizations and making sure that we're promoting women, we're thinking about women in leadership roles, thinking about salary. You know, I love that Salesforce, that Mark Benioff has spent so much time thinking about pay quality. You know, it's a huge issue. I mean, women are still being paid in sales at least $25,000 less on average for total compensation. So we're not getting the same bonuses as men. So it is certainly a problem. And then if you add in the diversity data points, it's even worse. So it's staggering that those kinds of pay inequities still exist and get worse the further down the diversity path that you go. And at least from what I see, it's a combination of the role, the base salary and commission setup of that role, who is hired for what, which could be based on unconscious biases, like the idea that new business are hunters. Those have got to be the men, right? Men go get the new deals. And then the women are the client success managers. The women are, you know, and it's like, you see that and then you we make it okay. We can form a, you know, like heaven forbid that a woman is a real shark, but Barbara Corcoran would have something to say about that. So it's just like, <laughs> so it, like, it, it's interesting to me that those discrepancies still exist. Cause I remember looking at a lot of pay data and seeing that even at companies where they would have, for example, a cis white male, and then a black cis female would be in the exact same role with the exact same comp structure. And yet the male would still be making more. And now a company would look at that and say, well, he's clearly just performing better. But then you realize that's not just a flash in a pan. That's not just one example. There's actually several examples of that. And what do you think is the reasoning there? Because the reason that we hear is, well, it's completely fair. They have the same OTE and opportunity. This one's just performing better. Clearly he is better at this. That doesn't sit right with me though. Right. And I think part of that is truthfully, things like, as you know, in sales, you get a territory, right? So are they getting the same types of territories, the same opportunities? Who's getting the best clients, right? I mean, we all know that there are certain clients, especially if you have, you know, an ideal client profile, who's getting the best clients that fit that profile. So, you know, managers still have a lot of opportunity to still make it unfair, unfortunately, who has, you know, I look at like our account teams, and I say, okay, well, who has, you know, we use SDRs and BDXs. So you know, first line sales calls, who has the best talent on that team, right? So really thinking about just opportunity at every single crossroads, right? Like, where is all those opportunities? So it's not just is the pay the same, you know, is it a 10% commission plan across the board? Yeah, it might be, but this person might have a way harder hill to climb than the person who's been there. And keep in mind, because there's so much discrepancy, and we're just starting to really start to hire more women and more minorities in these leadership roles, these other people have been there for years and years. So they've already built kind of, you know, I almost would say like, they're like kingdom, right? And so it's really hard for even new people to break in because like, oh, well, that's a named account. I've had that account forever. I've always had that relationship with XYZ company. So even then it's not fair, right? So I think there's a lot of other things and getting back to unconscious bias, right? We tend to not realize our own biases around that. Like, oh, well, we always give that account to Steve because Steve's really good at playing golf and doing these things with that account. So it probably wouldn't be the right account for you, right? Saying things like that. I have actually, not only have I experienced speaking to a prospect before and realizing, I think the fact that I'm a woman is what's stopping me from being able to close this. And you talk yourself out of that and you say, oh, I'm just being a wimp about it or like I'm making up an excuse. But I've felt that before where I think, you know what, if a guy were talking to this other guy, it would close. And there's lots of examples of that. Do you feel like feelings like that are real and justified of like, hey, if I weren't me 
me <laughs> being presenting my gender, my race, my culture, then I would have an easier time with this. Do you think that there is prospect bias? I think there's prospect bias, but I also think it can work. It's funny because I've heard the other side of it where, you know, I've closed a big deal and they're like, oh yeah, because you're a cute girl going to talk to a CIO, right? So, so, you know, being the only female on, as a CRO or as a head of sales, then there's the opposite, like, oh, well, of course they're going to buy from the cute girl, right? Or I've even heard it with my religion, right? Like, oh, well, of course they're going to buy your Jew, they're a Jew, you know, you're, they're going to buy from, so some of the stuff I'm just like, are you kidding me? You know, no, it's because I am way more prepared than any of you would be for any meeting. So I do think that gets back to though your point around why there needs to be diversity in sales, because as you know, sales is about relationships and building that relationship. And so if you're not connecting with your prospect, then you should bring in somebody who does connect with them. And so sometimes that is a gender thing. Sometimes that's a diversity thing. Sometimes that's a religion thing. Sometimes that's a, hey, I just don't connect with you for a thousand reasons, right? So I think that gets back to my whole why we need diverse sales teams to begin with, because sometimes I'm not going to be the best person to sell to a certain client. They might not relate to me or feel connected to me or like, you know, my passion, my energy, maybe it's too much for them. They want someone, you know, so I do think that for all of those reasons, you know, another reason why, but yes, to your point, I have seen it both ways where I feel like, you know, people, I think for me, the biggest thing is that being a CEO, sometimes people like to tell me about my job or tell me, mansplain to me about how, especially taking a new role, right? in an organization, like they don't even look at my background on LinkedIn and they just assume I don't know anything about tech or product or, you know, so I do think it's also very funny, the assumptions people make. How do you handle that? Because I'm thinking back to moments where I have edited myself or gosh, there was one example specifically, I was in a room with the executive leaders at a former company of mine and a very good friend of mine who is a black female sent me a text message and she said, I have a point that I want to make, but I don't want to come across like an angry black woman. Can you make this point for me? And in that moment, I realized that knowing as the person who is a different race or gender or belief or culture or sexual orientation, then the main people in the room, it often falls on our shoulders to back ourselves up or to correct the behavior, which is inherently uncomfortable. So can you think of the last time that somebody either made a comment to you like, oh, well, of course, they're going to buy from the cute girl. Oh, yeah, they're Jewish. You're, you know, you mentioned those. Or even somebody just as a CEO, like you make this amazing point that like, hey, CEOs get mansplained too also. And like, it just blows my mind. Like, what do you do? How do you handle that? Yeah, it depends on the situation. You know, I will say two companies ago, we had a male CEO who would constantly take credit for other people's ideas. And we as women, we would be like, oh, so like what Andy was saying or what like, like Anna said right before, right? So we would like literally like call it out just because we were like, and it didn't matter. I mean, at the end of the day, he was a CEO. So, but we just had to like on a principle, right? Try to, and we did. And actually he had an executive coach and we did try to like say to her, hey, we're trying to call him out, you know, in these meetings. So he's more self-aware of that. But to your point, yeah, like it just depends on the situation. Like I was literally on a call last week with a consulting firm that our private equity firm has worked with. And there were four men on the call and none of them looked at my bio and clearly. So they were trying to explain to me their services and how they help companies, you know, look at like tech enabled things. And they're like, you know, your business could really be more of a SaaS play. And let me explain to you why our SaaS software 
software is going and they're giving me the trends and SaaS software. I'm like, you clearly didn't know that I sold my company for a large multiple to Vista two years ago. Like, how did you not look at my bio and you're explaining to me how SaaS revenue works? Like, so, I mean, it was kind of shocking, but also I, as soon as he stopped talking, which was like 25 minutes through the call, I finally said to him, I said, yeah, I'm pretty familiar. I sold my last company for X multiple, you know, and he's like, Oh, okay. Because, well, I mean, you know, there's other things we can do for you also. I will never use them. I mean, I'm like the fact that you didn't even, you didn't take the time to read my bio. I mean, I never meet with somebody when I don't take the time to at least go on LinkedIn and read, you know, even if it takes me two minutes, I would never go into a meeting without having some context of someone's background or where they came from. I think that's completely ridiculous. Like, and you're trying to sell me something. (laughs) Yeah, it's this weird thing where it's like, don't put me in a position where I have to defend myself and I have to correct you in order to move forward because now it's uncomfortable and now I'm the aggressive woman in the room with a big ego that's flinging it around and it's like either that or shut down. And so it's a tough position that we are put in a lot. And so for you, thinking into the future and knowing how, not only how important thinking through diversity of all forms that companies are, but it's obviously a big hill to climb. What is your biggest priority right now in doing right by your company or your friends or your peers? Like what's on your roadmap to tackle this specifically? Yeah. So a few things. I angel invest in a women startup every single year. So for the past four years, I've angel invested only in women, companies that are actually not just women-led, but empowering women. So Bonfire, which is a company based here in Chicago, which is around all rise and sort of the middle level of management, making sure that they have the training, the skills to get promoted, to really work with their peers. So that's one company. Another company is called Verb, which is an unconscious bias training e-learning platform. So Susie Sosis talks all about conscious leadership. And so this platform is helping people understand conscious leadership and the things that they can do to help with unconscious bias. I think just really important, especially in changing that conversation. And then the third company is just around, it's around uh, baby food and thinking about how we can expose our kids to different types of cultural palates. So it's an Indian woman, her name's Shivani, and it's called Little Gourmets, also a Chicago-based company. And her whole idea is culture starts with everything, right? Exposing people to different diversity, even as babies, right? If I grew up eating turmeric and ginger, I have a different exposure to you know, how I feel about the Indian culture. So I love the idea of just starting when they're babies, right? Because that's part of the problem, right? We wait too long to introduce these concepts. So those are just examples of three companies. I also teach at Kellogg. I teach a class called Leading and Launching Startups, which is all about essentially second year MBAs. I really try to mentor a lot of the women that are in my class because a lot of them are looking to kind of for their next level of their career. So they've worked, they've been out of college, they've worked for a couple of years and now they're thinking maybe I want to launch my own business. So I do take a lot of them on as kind of mentees after the fact. And then I'm actually, I do an independent study. So I'm working with two women founders on a skincare line. So essentially when you think about anti-aging products, a lot of them don't have things that will help reduce acne, but people still have acne, especially as they're going through menopause and other changes in their body. So it's an anti-aging product, but it's really focused on the needs of women who still are acne prone. And it also looks at skincare for women in different age categories around holistically, like your diet, kind of everything you put in your body, because really that's how you change your skincare. So all different things, but I love the idea of just thinking about how do we solve women's issues or cultural issues. So my lens is they have to be a woman founder 
and they have to be doing something to change how we either think about diversity or how we think about women's health or women's initiatives or women's empowerment. When I asked that question, I was in no way prepared for that incredible list that you just gave. Like I'm saying, if you could see my face, if everybody could see my face, my jaw is open and I'm just like, wow, I think you are doing so much more than so many people would. And you were even giving me ideas. Like if I'm a sales manager or a leader of an office and I'm listening to this, when you were talking about even the different types of ethnic and cultural foods and how exposing people to that, I feel like that's a great way to make people feel comfortable in an office setting or even in a remote setting is find days and ways to bring other cultures in, have people experience the food, like make your company feel like a home to people where regardless of what they look like, you found companies that do that. But I feel like what prompted you to get involved so heavily in all of these different ways? There had to be something in your life that triggered you to be so open and eager to lean in the way that you have. And I'm just wildly curious about it. I mean, some of it is just who use the word curious, but curiosity, right? I want to learn about all these other companies and what women are, especially what women are doing. I've experienced all these problems, right? I think that the best startups now are going to come from the underrepresented either minorities, right? Because we know how to solve white people problems, like, right, Uber is a white person problem, things like that, right? Grubhub, very much a white person. And I'm, I mean, I'm being very generalized here, but the idea is that we have not thought about women's issues from a startup standpoint and tech standpoint. We have not thought about minority issues, our inner cities, right? Like we need those. That's where the startups need to come from and the investment should be going to those people. And I also invest in people that have never, you know, I've fundraised before I've exited to companies. I can go raise not probably not tons of money, but I, cause I'm still a woman, but I can raise money, right? I know how to raise money. I've done it before. I have a track record, but I invest in, in women's businesses who've never raised money before, who don't have that track record, who would never get their company off the ground, but they're solving real problems. Like I do think that these are, are problems and things that we need to think about and they're real issues. And I think the more we can really, I mean, the best startups solve a big problem or a problem that we're trying to understand better and through the use of people and process and technology. So I think anytime you can do that, you're making a difference in the world in your own small way, right? I'm not, unfortunately, I don't have these deep pockets. I wish I did to, you know, invest in all these companies and really take them far, but at least I can help them get that first seed round, right? Because if not, these companies wouldn't exist. So yeah, I have to hope that the resources will find the people who will use them best. So I couldn't think of a better place for those kinds of funds to sit than with somebody like you that is looking at things with such an open eye and wide lens. You've definitely inspired me. And I'm not just saying that, but I am in awe of your ability to juggle so much and think so deeply about some critical issues and to be so open about it. And it sort of brings me to what I like to do towards the end of these, which is called our rapid reveal section. So rapid reveal is we've learned a lot about you professionally, but if anybody is like me after just listening to you talk, I want to get to know you a little bit deeper. So I've got five questions for you to dive in a little bit deeper. So be as open as you feel comfortable with. But first one, a little bit of a softball. Tell all of us about a pivotal moment in your life could be personal or professional. 
Yeah. So my dad was a huge supporter of mine. He was an entrepreneur. He worked for the limited in the early days. And I talk about the Girl Scout cookies. He was the one that like helped me come up with my business plan and like selling at the mall and the food court. And he just never saw gender. He never saw me as any differently. So he passed away in 2018 after a long battle with dementia and Parkinson's. So really I lost him much earlier than when he truly physically passed away. And so I think for me, that was such, it really rocked my world in a way that I can't even two years later really quantify. But when I look back at the lessons I learned, it taught me how to be more empathetic, how to really live in the moments more to really like I really understand loss now in a way that I don't think I ever truly appreciated loss. So now when a colleague or a friend or someone loses a parent, a loved one, a government, a child, like I do feel like I know how to be there for them better because I know what I needed. And I don't think I think sometimes until we've really, you know, the old saying of walked a mile in someone's shoes, we really can't have that empathy. So it's really taught me that I can't always understand where people are coming from. But once you've lived an experience, you really have that shared values. One, I'm so sorry to hear about his passing. And I can only imagine what it must have been like for him to feel such pride at having a daughter like you and see what you've done. And it's true. In those moments of life that are unimaginable, people often don't know the right thing to say or the right thing to do. And so it takes people who have been there to kind of show us how to be graceful in those moments. And like, you hate to have to go through that. But I know even me myself, when I'm sharing with people things that I've gone through. And I know that somebody has been there. It's like, you just know that person's going to know. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes the right thing to say is like, you know what, that really sucks. It's exactly, exactly. And that's what I learned, right? You know, like, all those things that people that you said to people when they've lost the loved ones are all the wrong things. And no one and obviously, you know, people don't need any heart, you know, harm around it. But it's now when I know what to say now, right? And I know how to be there. And I know how to show up, which I don't think I truly did before. I was like, oh, you said flowers, right? And it's over. Like, yeah, flowers and like, you know, they're edible arrangement or whatever. (laughs) I had so many edible arrangements. I was like, remember, (laughs) great marketing by edible arrangement, but like, oh my God, who needs that much fruit? Yeah, you were like, I was feeling really sad, but now that I have a piece of cantaloupe shaped like a flower. Right, right. It's all better. My dad, you know, I I hardly miss him. I'm going to eat this and feel much better. That's pretty quotable. And speaking, number two, speaking of things that are quotable, you have some life lesson quotes that you share and enrich the world with. So what is your favorite life lesson quote and why is it relevant to you in your life? Yeah, so I will say I I like simple things. I I don't want to, you know, I'm not a philosophy major, but when I was 15, I played field hockey. And my coach looked at me and she said, you know, I was getting frustrated with the way I was playing and I just was having a bad season. And she said, don't get furious, get curious. And I realized that back in the day, my first, I would get frustrated. I would get mad at myself for not performing or not doing well or not understanding something rather than really trying to understand like the root of the cause and really what can I learn from this experience? And I never approached things that way. And when she said that to me, I don't even know if she meant it that way, but then I was like, yeah, she's right. Why should be curious about this? So every time I get frustrated with things and I do, I will not say I'm, my kids will tell you I'm not the most patient person in the world. And I'm sure now my new team members will tell you that as well. I tend to think, well, what could I learn from this rather than react in a way that is angry or just not in, from an emotional perspective? Like how can I really learn and make myself better and grow from this experience? Don't get furious, get curious. I love that. Number three, and this one is always fun for me. Do you have any irrational fears? I have an irrational fear of dark water. Even like a sink with dirty water in it, nightmare fuel. Or like a dark beach, like to the point where I almost can't breathe. So everyone knows that with me, like dark water 
I can't do it. What is one of your irrational fears? That might sound as good as that. That is actually, it's really interesting. I'd love to like dig down into that one, but mine is literally like a silly thing, but I have an irrational fear of zippers, really hard to zip zippers. And the reason is because early in my career, I went on a business trip and, you know, didn't think it through, brought one dress with a long zipper in the back. And I couldn't reach because I have really short like dinosaur arms. And so I couldn't reach back. And then I was playing with the zipper and I must have broke it because I was trying to zip it so that I had to go down to the hotel, you know, I'm in a hotel room by myself, right? So I have to go down and ask the people at the front desk, which of course are all men at that moment to help me with the zipper. Well, they couldn't, I had messed it up so badly that essentially they couldn't have it zip. And so they were like, we can't get this to zip. I was going to a meeting with a prominent bank. Like, I mean, it was like in New York City. I mean, it was like Wall Street. I mean, the worst possible meeting. And the only thing left I had to wear, and it was like 730 in the morning, it was a breakfast, so I couldn't like go shopping. So I had flown out that night and of course had worn a sweatshirt that said, I just want to be home with my dog and a pair of jeans. And I was like, I can't wear a dress where you can literally see my entire behind. So I went upstairs, put my sweatshirt on and my jeans and like literally was like, they will either find this very funny or they will never do business with me again. Luckily, you know, I was able to kind of, you know, but I have learned two life lessons in that way, irrational fear of zippers that seem hard. So I will literally, if I'm trying on something at a store and I don't get the zipper up the first time, I'm like, oh my God, no, I can't buy it. And the second thing, because I, yeah, I used to pre-COVID travel and be alone a lot with my zippers. And then the second thing I have learned is you always bring a spare outfit you know, when you are traveling, like I always used to be such an efficient packer. And now I'm like, you always need to bring a spare outfit because you never know what's going to happen with a wardrobe malfunction. So that's why I have an irrational fear of zippers. I'm impressed that you've gone one step further to turning your irrational fears and like into a solution orient, you know, for me, I, just, I, I can't get mad at the zippers. So I had to come up with, I haven't made it that far. I'm still just scared of dark water. And it's just, there's no, there's no learning. There's no learning there for me. It's just keep it away from my me. kids when they were little and I have to zip up their coats. I was like, ah! like, I, it's really like crazy. Like I hate zippers. Oh my God. That's my favorite question. Yeah. <laughs> I actually amazing. was like, when you said you were saying that, I was like, oh gosh, that's actually like really funny. Yes. Number four, you're not only an incredibly busy leader, but you're CEO, you have summited the mountain. For you specifically, what do you do to prepare your mind, your body before you go into a stressful or really high stakes meeting or conversation? I imagine it has to be a process that even you go through deliberately. Oh my gosh, always. Like even before this podcast, I like took a deep breath and like center myself. And yeah, and I think it's all about being present in that moment. And as women, we're trying to juggle and balance so many things. And I feel like if I can just center myself and be present in that moment, I'll stop worrying about all the other 9,000 things that are going on in my head. So I do, but I have a 14-year-old daughter. And a few years back, I was talking to her. It was when I was CEO of my previous company. And she just looked at me and she's like, mom, you're such a good role model. I'm so proud of you. And I think about like, what she thinks of me. And so I really try to emulate like when I'm feeling insecure, or I'm feeling like I can't do things or I can't get, I'm going to do a horrible job at a meeting. I think about how I like channel her strength and just think about how she believes in me. And if she can believe in me, then I should be able to believe in me. That's really what I try to remind myself is like, I need to believe in myself the way my daughter believes in me. Uh, I promised myself I wasn't going to cry and I'm not going to, but once you bring out the mom story, I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't, that's beautiful. And to prevent me from becoming a mush, because ever since becoming a parent, it's like I used to be. It is. Well, my, my son is waiting for college acceptances this week. And I keep thinking, I'm so excited for him, but I'm going to lose my mind next year when he leaves me. <laughs> so. 
Yeah. Oh, my son is just about to turn three. And ever since having him, I've gone from being like, I'm a stern woman. I'm a mush. I'm a mush about all things now. And last but not least, number five, you talked a little bit about things that you're doing to elevate the people around you. But how have you used your success specifically to make the world a better place? Why is Andy Harris, CEO, making the world better? Yeah, I mean, my whole thing is co-elevation, right? That we have to all elevate each other. And I love the idea of thinking about of like whether it's my leadership teams, whether it's causing, you know, creating diversity within my own organizations, it's helping other diverse organizations grow. I mean, with investment. I teach at Northwestern. I love Kellogg. I don't do it for the money. I do it for my love of having the ability to influence the next generation. As my students will tell you, I spend an entire, you know, it's a 10 week class. I spend an entire three hour class period talking about culture and diversity. And this is, you know, these are people like, let me tell me about funding, tell me about go to market strategy. And I'm like, nope, we're going to talk about culture, we're going to talk about hiring the right people and diversity and why it's important. Because at the end of the day, I think culture matters more than anything else, anything else that matters within your company. And it is important to me. And I'm really trying to get the next generation to focus on that as they go out to be leaders and just making sure if I could teach them one thing about that, that's really, you know, is my hope. So, you know, I try to do as much as I can. I do mentor kids on the South side as well through different organizations. So, you know, my goal, to constantly be giving back. I wish I had more time and more energy, but you know, so I do try to do as much as I can while balancing a full-time job, my own kids and teaching. So, I mean, you just in this short amount of time, you've shared so many things that I think can help so many people, regardless of their position, regardless of their level of influence and regardless of their experience to make themselves a better person, to make their company and their teams a better place. And if we each do that, focus on doing just one right thing, it's how the world elevates. And so I have loved hearing about your thoughts on diversity and why it's a problem and how we can be a solution and what to look out for and how to train our teams. This has been absolutely wonderful. Wonderful. And we even got the bonus takeaway of never forget a second outfit. Like these are the life skills that we need. And so we are coming up on our time. And I imagine that people are going to want to hear so much more from you. So where should people go to learn more about you to connect with you to learn about your company? I personally have, I've gone through the whole challenger gamut. I am a huge fan. You've made me a better seller. So how do people connect with you? So yeah, so our website is challengerinc.com. Also, you can find me on LinkedIn. As my 14-year-old will tell me, I need to do a better job on my Snapchat, Instagram. I'm terrible with all of that. So LinkedIn is probably the best place to find me. It's Andy, A-N-D-E-E, Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S. But feel free to send me a LinkedIn message. You know, love to hear people's thoughts, comments, anything I could do to help in the community. And Christina, this was amazing getting to know you. And now I feel like I should flip it around because I have so many questions for you. So we'll have to do a series, a follow-up series. I mean, we need to have coffee or a martini or something because this is amazing. And the right, we'll do it on our individual Pelotons. It'll be great. Andy, thank you so much. I appreciate you spending the time. I know you're busy. It's been incredible having you on Taking the Lead. I am honored to be a friend of yours and to learn from you. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's a blast. <laughs> Bye-bye. This episode was brought to you by Sales Assembly. For more information about membership or our free 60-day trial, visit us at salesassembly.com. And if you like what you just heard, please subscribe to Taking the Lead on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a review. It really helps people find the show. Thanks for listening.